Welcome to another mathematical moment from the American Mathematical Society. I'm Scott Hirschberger. Today, we're talking with Dr. Lauren Crawford. He's the RGSS Assistant Professor of Biostatistics at Brown University, and is also a senior researcher at Microsoft Research New England. He uses machine learning and statistics to study complicated interactions between genetic features. His work is helping reveal nuances in how genes influence traits, ranging from our height and weight, to our susceptibility to certain diseases. So, Dr. Crawford, welcome. I'm glad to be talking with you. Thanks so, thanks, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate yeah. it. So to start off, can you tell us a little bit about this term epistasis that I know is very important to the work that you're doing in this area? Yeah, so the, so the, uh, the common uh, presentation of that word is epistasis. Um, oh, okay. And that well, thank is, you. <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's totally fine. It's, a, it's this idea of studying um, variation of traits in human beings or model organisms. So you can think about um, height in humans, uh, body weight in, in, um, in mice, um, uh, how much yield a particular crop will produce. And you could think about those types of traits across bunch, uh, you know, collections of humans, mice, and, and plants. And what we typically want to study is the variation of those traits across those populations, right? And so epistasis is this idea of studying things past additivity. So this idea of, you know, um, I have additive effects, meaning I have the effect of a given gene in our bodies, um, plus the effect of another gene gives rise to some trait. Epistasis is the idea of the effect of like gene A times the effect of genes, gene B. So not additive, but like multiplicative. Um, and that could be second order, so two genes, uh, third order, three genes, some kind of polynomial type of effects. Um, and epistasis is idea of studying how that variation plays a role um, in the very and explain the variation of, of, of traits and phenotypes. And I suppose I should add also um, for people who might not be familiar that phenotype is basically just the manifestation of the genes in your physical traits, right? right so right. that would be like your actual height, your actual susceptibility to type 1 diabetes, something like that. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. And can you give us an example of a trait that we know to have an important epistatic component? Yeah, there, there, there are a few. So, you know, one, one classic example is from um, the Wellcome Trust Center for Human uh, Genetics, where they've taken like a panel of phenotypes uh, from mice and they've categorized them in six broad categories. That could be anything from, you know, physical traits to, to more um, um, uh, it, things like uh, body weight, glucose levels, uh, to things like uh, CD8 blood cell types and things like that. Um, and what you can do with this panel actually is you can kind of break, go, go in and take a breakdown and you can look and see how much variation is being contributed by these different types of effects. And you can actually see um, that, you know, uh, very rarely actually in a lot of these traits does additivity actually dominate the uh, phenotypic variance that's explained according to our genetics. A lot of times there is this like non-additive structure. In human beings, it's a little bit different Actually, what, we, what people have shown, or, or, or there's a hypothesis out there that epistasis plays a quite minor role in the variation of our traits for humans. Um, there's a little caveat there, which is, you know, a lot of the studies that we've um, focused on in, human, in humans have been based off of people of one particular um, 
uh, continental ancestral population. And so most studies have been um, based, uh, you know, ma magnitudes difference in terms of representation for people of uh, self-identified European ancestry uh, versus people of other ancestral groups. And so when we say that, um, you know, non-additive variation might not play a role in um, the phenotypic heritability or the heritability for, for phenotypes and traits um, that we uh, study in genetics, you know, a lot of that is conditioned on this idea that we're not actually looking at the larger group of, of diverse populations. We only kind of have studied one population. So a, a particular trait where this is actually interesting, where you can see, um, one type of architecture for one population, another type of architecture for another is skin pigmentation. Uh, people have shown that skin pigmentation actually for, for people of one ancestral group uh, can be quite sparse. Um, and so meaning that only you have a few um, genes that affect the variation of that trait. And then for another population, um, it could be quite polygenic. So what that means is that you have many uh, uh, genes uh, with, with tiny effects kind of playing a role in the variation of that trait. And not only is it polygenic, but it also it uh, can have a non-additive architecture. So you can see like if I, if I look at a certain trait in different populations for humans, um, I could have very different conclusions about the architecture of these phenotypes. And so that's a, that's a huge motivating factor, I think, for people to, to want to, uh, you know, to want to be more inclusive in the um, representation of individuals that we enroll in these studies because you can start to get a broader viewpoint of, of the types of genetic um, uh, gene to phenotype relationships that might be out there um, instead of just having kind of a, a, a uh, you know limited viewpoint on just one group of people. Yeah, so you're not going to get a full view of how these genes are behaving unless you actually have a sample of people who reflect all of humanity. Exactly, exactly. And so a lot of this work, um, it shows up in genome-wide association studies, yep. correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, now, I know that this is something that's only become possible very recently, um, both in terms of computation and just like our, our tools in genetics. So can you explain what these are and like why now we're able to, to study this sort yeah, of thing? Yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been quite amazing. You know why association studies this idea of you know us studying you know uh, uh, DNA within within um, different populations of humans and since then there have been these huge efforts these consortium based efforts really um, when effectively what that means is is taking large groups of people sequencing their DNA um, and then being able to study their genomes and these biobanks um, at, at large scale. For many phenotypes, so you have people that come in, they, they enroll in these studies. Um, uh, they also are phenotypes for catalog of different things. Um, what that, that basically means that we track, you know, how tall they are in terms of height. Um, you take things like body mass index, but you also take things like, uh, do they have type 1 diabetes? Do they have um, bipolar disease? You know, you have a, a wide range of things. Um, and what we can do is start to understand how these different factors in terms of, um, uh, you know, not only our genotypes, but also our environmental effects uh, and their interactions between each other kind of give rise to, um, you know, uh, these disease, the, you know, genetic and phenotypic disease risk effectively for, for certain things. Um, and, and what's been really great about um, 
this you know rapid advancement, both in the way that we're able to collect data, but also in terms of community, the way that we're able to analyze data at large scales, right? These data sets are huge now, where um, you know thinking about the UK Biobank, you have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of individuals um, that have been genotyped, you know, for for like. Uh, a million SNPs, right? So you're, the, the matrices that you're working with here are like hundreds of thousands by like millions of features. So I know a lot of your work has to do with making this more manageable, being able to actually do a search for these epistatic effects, the way these genes are interacting non-linearly or non-additively with each other. So can you tell me a little bit about um, how your work is, is addressing those computational challenges? Yeah, so if you take just the, like, let's, let's like, uh, pare it down. So let's just think about pairwise interactions in a huge data set. Um, okay. That's a combinatorially massive problem, right? It's like a P choose two problem if I want to think about um, how every, like, mutation in a data set might interact with another set of mutations, right? Um, and so as P gets larger, like P gets a million, like, searching over that search space is going to take forever, right? Like it takes a long time. Um, and so, especially if you want to do it exhaustively. And so what we've been thinking about our strategies to not have to search over this huge search space um, in an exhaustive fashion that could take forever. So could you be kind of strategic in the way that you think about um, how to, you know, first shrink that search space to something that you might have a high probability of, of finding epistatic hits? And then searching within that that reduced search space, um, one it, it decreases your time, right, to look for things. But from a statistical perspective, it also increases your power because you're not doing so many tests that you now have to correct for, right? Um, in statistics, you you if you search over p choose two interactions, you know I now have to correct for the fact that I did p choose two tests, right? So this idea of like I'm going to find something significant by chance is going to happen. Right, like I just ran. I've been, I've looking, I've been looking everywhere. I'm gonna find um, uh, small p values, for instance, somewhere. Um, and so by limiting, yeah. And search sorry to interrupt. Can you just explain for people who might not be as familiar um, what you mean by statistical power and p values? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so a lot of times um, in these me in the statistical methods that we develop, we we give uh, um, a measure of significance to you know each gene in our data set, and with that, with that typically is, is um, uh, quantified as is what we call a p-value, right? A small p-value means I have a lot of confidence that what I've identified is actually, you know, associated with my given output, right? Um, and if I do many tests, so let's say I test the association of many given markers in my data set, you know, the, the chance that I'm going to find a marker that has a small p-value is going to be, you know, I'm eventually going to stumble on something. So what we do is we call this multiple correction um, to basically correct for this idea that I've done multiple tests. It's a way to control for what we call false discovery rates, right? Type one error rates. Um, and if you think about the epistatic problem, you know, that's a lot of tests to go through. And so the idea that I'm going to, I, I'm going to stumble on some interaction that that may look like it has an association with my given phenotype actually is, is, is quite high. Eventually I'm gonna hit something. And so what we say is statistical power is, you know, I have a threshold for which I have for p-values that I say I'm gonna call anything below that threshold, I'm gonna say is significant. 
Um, well, multiple correction, what that basically does is make that threshold much more stringent, conditioned on how many tests I did, right? Um, and so when I say statistical power is after I've moved that threshold to be much more stringent, you know, that means I'm calling a lot more interactions or a lot more p-values not significant, right? And so power means how many, after I've moved that threshold to be more stringent according to how many tests I did, how many p-values or true positives am I still able to find that are still lower than this much stringent p-value threshold? So what we created was this idea, like when I was in grad school, we thought about this idea called MAP-IT, which was a, a strategic way to search over a lot of interactions um, without having to look, look at all p, choose two of them. And so what MAP-IT does is says, what I'm gonna do is take all variants or all SNPs or genes in my data set, I'm going to derive a test that'll tell me how likely is it that any given gene is in an interaction, right? Instead of looking at all peaches two combinations, I'm gonna take every gene individually and say, how likely is it that you're in an interaction? And if that likelihood is high, then I'll take that gene and then I'll search and I'll take all genes that have high likelihoods and I'll search among those for interactive effects. What that does is that reduces my search space to just looking at first every P SNP individually or every P gene individually. And then it says, now just search over this tiny sub-selective group of them that you think have a high probability of being in, a, in an interaction, search among those, and that'll increase your chances of finding SNPs. And now I have probably a higher chance or a higher power to, to detect um, more interaction effects. So that's, these are the kind of like strategic things that we've been doing is like, how do I think about how to, you know, maneuver these, um, these high dimensional spaces without feeling the need, like I have to search over every like nook and cranny effectively. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you so much, Dr. Crawford for talking with me. Uh, this has been fascinating. And I hope everyone watching has learned a little bit about the math involved in genetics. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much.